Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Great. Good evening. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This evening, we'll be hearing from Mr. James Rice. Mr. Rice is the Legislative Director for U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, for whom he has worked since June 2000. In this role, Mr. Rice serves as the Chief Advisor to Senator Grassley on foreign policy matters, included, including in Senator Grassley's capacity as Co-Chair of the Senate Baltic Freedom Caucus. Mr. Rice's previous professional experience includes positions in the Iowa Senate, an internship with the British Conservative Party, and work on various political campaigns. He has been recognized by the Estonian Ministry of Foreign Affairs for his contributions to public diplomacy. Mr. Rice received a BA from Drake University with majors in political science and history and an MA in statecraft and international affairs at the Institute of World Politics. Mr. Rice, welcome and thank you for joining us this evening. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much, everybody, for uh, joining this event on uh, Baltic security on what happens to be the 103rd uh, birthday of the modern Republic of Lithuania. Uh, so it's an appropriate time. Um, so my research is, is focused mainly on Estonia, but there's also a lot of shared history between the two uh, or the three Baltic nations in the 20th century. So uh, much of what I'll talk about is broadly applicable to Latvia and Lithuania as well. Um, and I'll I'll start, first of all, with a, with a disclaimer uh, that, uh, first of all, this talk is based on academic research that I performed outside of my professional work, and I'm speaking entirely on my own behalf. Uh, and also, I should add that I have uh, I've had no official briefings or classified or unclassified on these subjects. So this is all based on open source application uh, academic research. Um, uh, and also, I'll be talking a lot about history uh, because I think understanding Estonia's modern modern history is crucial to understanding Estonian society and the government of today. And the same is true for Latvia and Lithuania. Um, Estonian foreign policy uh, places great importance on uh, its NATO membership and its uh, membership in the EU uh, and, and its bilateral uh, relationship with the United States. Um, that's no surprise to anybody. Um, and um, but, you know, there's certainly historical roots to that. The um, uh, in addition to just their geopolitical situation uh, during World War II, the, the Baltic countries were neutral and didn't have any viable allies with which they could rely on. Uh, sandwiched between uh, Nazi Germany and, and uh, uh, Soviet Union. Uh, and so they got rolled over three times. They had three occupations, first by the Soviets, then by the Nazis, and then by the Soviets again, which, of course, uh, lasted 50 years. Um, so, uh, and you can contrast that with um, Estonia and Finland are, you know, uh, culturally and linguistically very similar. Uh, but Finland had a different experience. It was able to fight off uh, in the Winter War uh, the Soviets, and, and they lost part of their territory, but maintained their independence. And then they took a, you know, they have historically had a different attitude toward neutrality. So you hear about the term Finlandization. Um, and sort of Estonia's experience uh, is very much one of, uh, you know, wanting to have allies and, and trying to join as many, um, uh, you know, 
whether it's the NATO alliance or or any kind of uh, multilateral uh, club that provides some sort of uh, um, you know tie to other allied nations, uh, like-minded nations. Uh, and so um, it's also you know what I'm going to be talking mainly about is that Estonian military strategy also complain, uh, contains elements of a society-wide national resistance concept that dates uh, all the way back to the Estonian War of Independence. Uh, and also informed by the uh, Soviet anti-Soviet resistance period following World War II. This uh, total defense principle is an important complement to the NATO Article 5 security guarantee, uh, and something that is important for allies like the United States to take into account when uh, planning security cooperation. So in, you know, in the, I'll do kind of a brief overview of the history, uh, or maybe not that brief, but in the in the War of Independence, uh, Estonian, Estonian armed forces, um, uh, included both the uh, newly formed Estonian army, as well as a union of armed citizens, um, the Kitesalit, or Estonian Defense League. Uh, and I, I I think of that as roughly like the uh, the Continental Army under George Washington and versus the colonial militias. Uh, there's one that's sort of a regularized army and one that's um, more a citizen-based uh, armed force. And um, together they fought off both the Germans and Soviet Russia in a in a an improbable uh, victory that you know two big powers at the time that they were able to fight them off and uh, and then on February second, nineteen twenty, uh, Soviet Russia signed the Treaty of Tartu in which it recognized the independence of the Republic of Estonia in perpetuity. Um, their idea of perpetuity isn't what I guess other people would think because that didn't last, but. Uh, uh, in the interwar period, Estonia and the Baltic states found themselves sandwiched between an uh, increasingly assertive Soviet Union and a resurgent Germany. So, uh, despite uh, but despite their apparently similar predicament, the uh, geopolitical concerns of the Baltic states at that time diverged. Uh, uh, for instance, Lithuania had an ongoing territorial dispute with Poland uh, over its historic capital and that that region, uh, Vilnius or Vilno in Polish, which was controlled by Poland at that time. And so that made a, you know, cooperation with the uh, with Poland, which would have otherwise been logical um, uh, with the three Baltics more difficult because of the, the, the situation with Lithuania. Um, and also uh, Lithuania was concerned about German interest in reclaiming um, Klaipeda um, or Memel, Memeland in German, uh, which was historically controlled by Germany, but had a large Lithuanian population. On the other hand, uh, Estonia saw Soviet Russia as its primary threat and didn't really view Germany as the primary danger to Estonia's independence. Um, so on the kind of either end of the, of the Baltics, you have a um, slightly different emphasis, still the same threats, but, um, but some differences that made cooperation more difficult at that time. Um, in addition, you get pride and national feeling amongst newly independent countries that um, sometimes get in the way uh, and, um, that was something that actually Russia and Germany tried to play play them off each other. Um, and even if they'd been able to, to work out um, uh, closer cooperation, there were other barriers to close Baltic co uh, uh, coordination, for instance. Each country had sourced its weapons differently, and so they were not interoperable. The, um, uh, and you have a situation where the Soviets were demanding a security arrangement with the Baltics. Uh, where they they um, insisted that the Baltics allow Soviet troops on their territory in order to um, uh, defend against Germany, uh, but the um, the Baltic countries had you know again no allies or treaties to secure their independence, 
And, and naturally, they were reluctant to allow Soviet troops on their territory uh, because the conditions that the, um, the Soviets were offering, they rightly saw as threatening their sovereignty. And then in uh, 1939, you have the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. Uh, and that, of course, contained a secret protocol dividing up Eastern Europe into spheres of influence. And the Soviet Union was ultimately assigned the Baltics plus Finland and uh, eastern portion of, uh, of then Poland um, and the region of Bessarabia and Romania or modern day Moldova. And um, according to the uh, uh, historian Tovo Ran, the, um, the contents of the secret protocols were well known to the Estonian leadership within three days of, of being signed. Still, when the Soviet troops started massing on the border, the Estonian government determined that military mobilization was uh, both impractical at that stage and risk provoking the Soviets. And so they, they did not mobilize a military defense. Um, and the Soviets renewed their push for a security agreement and they even upped their demands. Uh, they sought military bases with Soviet troops stationed on Estonian soil. And the, uh, the government ultimately agreed to negotiations. Um, and the same, is, same thing, similar thing happened to the other two Baltic countries. Um, uh, President Pats argued at the, that, that, that not only was resistance futile, but that it might endanger the continued existence of the Estonian people as a whole, which um, at that time, not knowing what the future could hold, I, I suppose that's a, a, a rational argument that if uh, um, uh, you, know, you have a small country and they could just be entirely annihilated. Of course, um, we now have the benefit of hindsight. However, uh, you also, uh, the, his, the historian and um, uh, former anti-Soviet dissident slash former prime minister, Mart Lahr, um, who's done a lot of research on, on, on all of Estonian history, including the resistance movement. So a lot of my research is based off of, um, off of his, uh, his initial original research. Um, uh, he maintains that most Estonians and some of the military supported rejecting the Soviet demands. Um, and he notes that the commander of the Estonian army, uh, General Johan Ledener, uh, was, he named the commander of the Defense League, uh, General um, uh, Orasama, uh, as his successor should he die, because he expected that uh, uh, by that time, Estonia would be in the midst of a partisan war. Um, and so the society was prepared to resist, and there was some preparations for resistance, but the political leadership uh, chose not to, um, to call for or, or command um, the military to resist. Um, so when the, the, the country itself failed to fight, hundreds of young Estonians fled to Finland to fight the Soviets as, as part of the Winter War, um, and they planned to return later to um, fight for the liberation of their own homeland. Um, and once, once, Estonian, or once, sorry, once Soviet troops were on Estonian soil, they set about disarming the population, including the Estonian Defense League. However, some members managed to hide their weapons in preparation for organized resistance later. Uh, and then a new pro-Soviet cabinet was formed, followed by elections where only Soviet-approved candidates were allowed. Uh, and that illegitimate parliament then, quote-unquote, requested to join the Soviet Union, and Estonia became a Soviet Socialist Republic. However, the annexation of Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania uh, was um, never recognized as, as legitimate by the United States and other Western countries, and we maintained diplomatic relations with the three Baltic countries throughout, throughout the uh, occupation. So the Soviet occupation of Estonia was, was incredibly brutal. Uh, political arrests began even before the annexation became official. Uh, large numbers of Estonians from all levels of government and civil society were deported to Siberia and, um, or just executed. 
So um, entire families with young children and pregnant women were labeled bourgeois class enemies and sent to gulags. Most of them, uh, most of those that were departed, uh, de uh, deported in that first, uh, that first year of Soviet rule didn't survive that first winter in Siberia. So this led to the first Estonians hiding in the forest to avoid deportations. Once word got out, um, uh, people who were at risk of being deported uh, fled to the forests. Uh, and they formed armed bands that were called Forest Brothers. And that's a term that, that is, it pops up in all three Baltic countries. So um, when the Nazis attacked the Soviet Union, a number of Estonians in the Finnish armed forces returned as part of the reconnaissance group called Erna, which was um, uh, beginning to organize the Forest Brothers to drive out the Soviets. Uh, and then when the Soviets started to retreat from Estonia, they attempted to conscript Estonians into the Soviet military, which led more uh, Estonian men to flee to the forest. Um, and then this was the beginning of the, um, the partisan movement aimed at restoring uh, Estonian independence. As they retreated, Stalin ordered a scorched earth policy. He formed uh, so-called destruction battalions. Um, and uh, that kind of went through the countryside trying to just basically destroying any signs of um, resistance or, or um, just destroying everything in, the, in its path to leave little for the for the Germans, um, and then the Estonians uh, fought both the destruction battalion, uh, battalions and the retreating Soviet troops in hopes of liberating their country, and they hoped that uh, the Germans would allow them to resume their independent statehood, but it soon became clear that a restoration of the Republic of Estonia was not part of the Nazis' plans. The uh, the German occupiers attempted to recruit Estonians into the German military, uh, but then when that the voluntary response was unenthusiastic. They resorted to conscription, which is a violation of the um, international law and during warfare. Um, and this led to thousands more Estonian men fleeing to Finland, uh, just like before. And, and they joined the Finnish armed forces and fought the Soviets. Um, meanwhile, the Soviets had left a, um, left behind a network of agents in attempting to organize their own communist partisan resistance to the Germans, but that attempt fizzled for lack of popular support. Then when the, uh, the tide turned and the Soviet military advanced on Estonia, uh, many Estonians uh, volunteered to fight alongside the Germans in order to keep the Soviets at bay and restore independence once the Germans had retreated fully. Uh, then when it became clear the Soviet rule uh, would return, the remaining members of the legitimate Estonian government issued order number two, which called for the, um, the, the organization of Forest Brothers units to resist the Soviet occupation. So they, with the official stamp of the government, the, um, the deportations resumed when the Soviets were, were back in control, and they targeted any Estonians that had fought the Red Army or otherwise cooperated with the Germans or anyone deemed a threat to Soviet control. Uh, and this led to many more Estonians joining the Forest Brothers. At first, the Forest Brothers pinned their hopes on the Western allies demanding restoration of Estonian statehood. Uh, per the words of the Atlantic Charter, they, they had read that and they were familiar with um, with these sort of proclamations of, uh, from uh, Western countries that uh, a country should, should uh, have uh, self-determination. And they took it to heart and, and thought that, um, that that meant that that United States and other Western countries would come in and, and liberate them or insist on their independence. So meanwhile, these, the Forest Brothers would just harass Soviet authorities intermittently, but they avoided large scale uh, engagements because they were preparing for an uprising in support of what they thought was an impending attack on the Soviets by the Western allies. Um, and uh, obviously that wasn't gonna happen. That wasn't, wasn't in the plans at any point. Um, 
I actually um, had a, a Lithuanian diplomat once tell me that there was a common phrase that was that was used in her family that um, when someone was waiting for something kind of for no reason, they would say, what are you waiting for, the Americans to come? Uh, and that um, that's because they, uh, uh, they had this memory of this time where they thought, well, soon the Americans will come and, and help liberate us. And we're, they were just waiting for that to happen. And it, of course, never happened. Um, and that's, you know, it's one, something that is American. I have mixed emotions about, obviously, that wasn't wasn't a practical thing. But the fact that uh, the country looked at uh, America as a beacon of freedom and 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 saw that uh, naturally they would be defending their right to an independent country um, is sort of sort of tugs on the heartstrings. Um, so uh, I should also mention, since we're talking about Lithuania, that the Lithuanian Fourth Brothers was the largest, most organized and most sustained resistance. Um, and so. Uh, according to one source, they killed about four uh, four thousand Soviets. So they did a lot more active resistance. All 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 three countries had Force Brothers that that um, fought Soviets. Um, the Lithuanian uh, effort was more widespread and more sustained. Um, so then at the Potsdam Conference, they ratified the deal made at Yalta, and that's kind of when the Force Brothers realized that liberation was not imminent, and they began organizing meetings to discuss a change in strategy for the long haul. Uh, the Forest Brothers recognized the need to coordinate and to develop a more centralized command structure. Uh, so initial attempts to do that were crushed by the Soviet secret police, but then the Armed Resistance League was formed in 1945 and 46 as sort of a blanket organization of, of most of the Forest Brothers bands, um, bands that lasted until about uh, 1948. Um, and it had a program of action that stated, quote, the organization is preparing an armed uprising against the Soviet regime at such a time when England and the United States go to war against the Soviet Union or when a political coup occurs in the Soviet Union itself, end quote. So the, um, the Forrest brothers attacked Soviet shipments of, of money and goods and then would distribute them to independent farmers that were often being coerced uh, by excessive, excessive taxation into joining collective farms. Uh, and that um, those attacks were also meant to assert their authority to the population and dissuade collaboration by, uh, and, um, by killing Estonian collaborators. And, uh, and punishing Soviets who repressed Estonians. Um, however, the Forrest Brothers uh, scrupulously avoided injuring innocents and would not confiscate private property. By the end of the 1940s, the uh, collectivization of agriculture in Estonia had uh, significantly undercut the Forrest Brothers' base of material support among independent farmers. Uh, mainly, they, they relied on being able to stay briefly in a barn or get food from the farmers who were sympathetic to their cause. Uh, and once the Soviets had successfully collectivized agriculture, um, they were sort of on their own, and it was much more difficult for uh, the Forest Brothers to, um, to to sustain living in the forest. Um, so the last major battles between the Soviet authorities and the Forest Brothers occurred around um, 1955 and 1956. And then you had the Hungarian uprising, which was crushed, and that further dashed the hopes of the Forest Brothers of a successful uprising like that happening in Estonia. Um, but uh, even after the armed resistance period was over, the impact of the Forrest brothers remained uh, really strong and important. Uh, so Martlar paraphrases the mission of one of the resistance organizations as, quote, to fight an ideological battle, inspiring faith in the restoration of Estonia's statehood, deepening contempt for the occupation authorities, and maintaining people's will to resist, end quote. So the fact that the Soviets feared the psychological influence of the Forrest brothers well after the last ones were eliminated uh, is shown by a booklet published in Tallinn in 1980 
uh, titled Blood-Soaked Traces of Bourgeois Nationalism. Uh, it's available, it's, it's in the Library of Congress. The um, publication painstakingly recounts the history of the Estonian armed resistance to the Soviets, but with a pro-Soviet spin, um, clearly intended to blunt the impact of the historical memory by, um, by trying to uh, spin it as, as, um, as something that's against the, the, uh, the interests of the people. Um, but then in a, a booklet that Marlar wrote on the anti-Soviet resistance, he quotes one of the last Forrest brothers explaining why he did not give up even when it was clear that resistance to the Soviets was futile. Quote, and what was this drive that forced us out, the last Forrest brothers, to stay in hiding? I'll tell you, we knew that as long as we were still breathing, holding a gun, and feeling Estonia's soil beneath our feet, everything was all right. We knew that our captured comrades had it much worse. We knew that we were booked for a one-way ticket to Siberia. We knew that a bullet from our own gun would save us from enemy torture, uh, end quote. And then Lar goes on to add that this was the attitude that saved the soul of Estonia, and it was the spirit that urged the Estonians to restore their independence in 1991. Um, so since its initial independence, Estonia has been a small nation surrounded by aggressive great powers, uh, and therefore unconventional warfare has necessarily been part of Estonia's strategic calculus from the beginning. Um, now, naturally, Estonia's geopolitical position has improved substantially from the interwar period in that Germany is an ally and not a threat, and Estonia is part of NATO and the EU. But on the other hand, Russia's aggressive behavior has caused renewed concern in Estonia, um, and well before many in the U.S. were really paying close attention. So uh, in 2007, when the Estonian government moved a Soviet World War II memorial of a bronze soldier to a less prominent location, to a military cemetery instead of a... Um, right near the Freedom Square. Um, the um, uh, Russian media stirred up the local Russian-speaking population with inflammatory hyperbole and lies about uh, that they were gonna, that they were desecrating the war graves or they were gonna melt down the monument. Um, and uh, uh, they had uh, um, Estonian government, media, and banking websites were subject of severe cyber attacks, which the Estonians were, were able to recover from. Um, and uh, uh, they're now experts in cybersecurity. Um, but then in uh, uh, 2008, Russia invaded and occupied two regions of the Republic of Georgia, which they still occupy. And then, of course, we have the um, operations against Ukraine in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea and the, the ongoing military intervention in the Donbass region. Uh, and in response, uh, Estonia has updated its defense policy to address the heightened possibility of Russian aggression. Uh, and given the small size of the Baltics, they can't possibly match the military forces already in uh, Russia's Western military district. So NATO plays a central role in defense planning, of course. Um, and Estonia's strategy in case of Russian invasion is essentially to hold off the initial attack uh, as long as possible until larger NATO allies can, can um, mount a response. Um, but an, an often cited 2016 uh, report by the RAND Corporation analyzed the correlation of forces in the region and determined that NATO was unprepared to defend the Baltics against a Russian attack with uh, Russian forces uh, being able to reach the outskirts of Tallinn in 60 hours. Uh, so even with the presence of allied tripwire forces as part of NATO's enhanced forward presence designed to deter a Russian miscalculation and um, a conventional military defense of the Baltics, cannot currently stop a, a full-scale invasion. Um, so that report I mentioned, and then more recent reports by the Jamestown Foundation and the Center for Strategic, Strategic and Budgetary Assessments have um, have come up with different formulations, but they all um, they all 
come to the conclusion that a considerable increase in conventional forces is needed for a credible deterrence, uh, a conventional deterrence. Um, and even then, um, that just raises the cost and changes the calculation for Russia. Uh, it's hard to imagine NATO forces of such size that could actually match the forces that are across the border in Russia. Um, and should and if Russia should decide to launch a, a concerted sustained attack, um, you know, uh, even even an enhanced force would not be able to hold off an invasion forever. So, given its history, Estonia's defense planning doesn't rely solely on conventional military defense. Uh, Estonia's uh, first defense chief after the restoration of independence issued General Order Number One, which still stands, uh, and it calls on all Estonian defense forces provide active resistance to any aggressor without waiting for orders unless ordered otherwise by the elected president. So that's uh, kind of aimed at the situation before where, except in that case, the president said not to resist, but um, uh, but it foresees a, a, a situation where the, the for instance, there could be a decapitation attack or there could, uh, or basically the default is that there'll be resistance. There shouldn't be any question on the part of, of, of Russia that the plan is, plan A is resistance no matter what, uh, unless something changes. It isn't a question of will Estonia resist this time or not. It's, 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 it's the, it's, you know, there's this general order on the books that says, yes, there will be resistance. Um, and there's a, a, a very good, uh, uh, another report from the RAND Corporation from 2019 that kind of fills in the picture by discussing the deterrent effect of the concepts of resilience and resistance that we're discussing here. Um, and this includes that total defense concept involving the whole of society to both deter aggression and raise the cost of action while uh, providing support for a conventional military defense. So all male Estonian citizens between the ages of 16 to 60 have a constitutional obligation to take part in the national defense. And then there's the Voluntary Estonian Defense League, which was restored in February 1990 um, before Estonia fully regained its independence. And that plays a key role in the defense strategy as well. The, um, since Russia's aggression in the region, uh, the numbers uh, of volunteers for the Estonian Defense League, the Katsi League, um, have swelled and it's uh, it's becoming very popular for Estonians to, to join that and and, um, and participate in, in the, the military training that it offers. Um, and, and it's increased its training and preparation, um, including for unconventional warfare in the event of an invasion. Um, and the Defense League is structured regionally so that local units have responsibility for territorial defense without having to be part of necessarily a nationwide uh, coordination. Um, the Defense League uh, is sort of like an armed reserve, um, um, but it's 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 got elements that are that aren't that don't fit in with the within, um, sort of wartime structure. Um, and then, so we, there's a New York Times article that quoted a, a previous Defense League commander, quote, the best deterrent is not only armed soldiers, but armed citizens too. And he goes on to explain, the guerrilla activity should start on occupied territory straight after the invasion, so, end quote. The, um, a, a Defense League member is then quoted as saying that, quote, partisan war is our way. We cannot equal their armor. We have to group in small units and do a lot of destruction to the logistics convoys, end quote. And then this is my favorite quote from the, uh, the then commander um, of Estonia's Special Operations Force, um, Riho Utegi, who was uh, quoted by Politico saying, uh, quote, there are always these discussions like, yeah, the Russians can get to Tallinn in two days, maybe, but they can't get all of Estonia in two days. 
they can get to Tallinn, and behind them, we will cut their communications lines and supply lines and everything else. They can get to Tallinn in two days, but they will die in Tallinn, and they know this. They will get fired from every corner at every step. And incidentally, um, General Lutegi is now the commander of the Defense League. Um, so if the Ukrainian intervention is a template, a Russian incursion is likely to start with a hybrid operation involving the so-called little green men that are not in Russian uniform. And Estonia's defense planning envisions using guerrilla units from its special forces or the Defense League to respond at all stages of warfare. So hybrid operations during an invasion and resistance uh, in the event of an occupation. The ability um, to engage in and sustain and, and, and this kind of unconventional warfare is itself a deterrent, and I think a significant deterrent. Um, and this has been recognized by NATO and the U.S. military. Uh, for instance, uh, there was an exercise called Trojan Footprint, where the U.S. Special Operations Forces uh, simulated providing covert support to the Estonian Defense League and its Baltic counterparts um, in fighting a resistance war after a Russian invasion in the weeks before a full NATO counteroffensive could be mobilized. Um, and I know that uh, U.S. Special Forces have also done training with the Lithuanian National Guard specifically. I've read an article on that. And there's... Uh, um, uh, just uh, last December, I, I saw that the, um, uh, the U.S. Special Operations site was opened in Riga, Latvia. That was funded in part uh, through the European Deterrence Initiative, and that will allow U.S. Special Operations Forces to move quickly into and operate uh, in the area. So um, naturally, again, conventional NATO forces remain central to Estonia's national defense strategy, but the national defense strategy also states, quote, the basis of Estonia's national defense is the Estonian population's strong will to defend their country, which is in turn based on national self-awareness, self-confidence, and dignity. Estonia will defend itself in all circumstances and against any adversary, no matter how overwhelming. Should Estonia temporarily lose control over part of its sovereign territory, Estonian citizens will still resist the adversary within that territory. End quote. And I would add that that assertion is also backed up by polling data that shows Estonian citizens are uh, ready and willing to um, to fight uh, if needed. So um, Estonia has learned its lessons from its history. It's unfortunate strategic uh, isolation and lack of allies in the interwar period had tragic consequences. So naturally joining the European Union and NATO were key early goals in order to secure economic and military integration with the West. Uh, in fact, Estonia uh, is seeks to be a model ally and has long met NATO's 2% of GDP uh, expenditure goal. And um, Estonian troops have fought valiantly in the uh, wars in Afghanistan and Iraq alongside American and other allied forces. So, um, and then, you know, while cultural and political differences remain between the Baltic states, the um, this situation is much different than it was in the interwar period. Their shared experiences have resulted in a similar outlook and they cooperate very closely in foreign relations and defense matters. So um, uh, despite the decisions of uh, uh, the political leaders and the lack of preparation organization uh, in, back in, uh, in the interwar period, the resistance of the Forrest brothers uh, took uh, tremendous manpower for the Soviets to suppress. And it was um, uh, a wholesale collectivation of, of agriculture that really ended their base of support. Um, uh, I think uh, one of Mark Lars' works is called the Forgotten War. It was a, it was a it was a major war that the Soviets had to fight in the Baltics against the um, against the resistance, despite not necessarily uh, always being uh, well coordinated and and uh, and prepared. And efforts by the West to link up with the Forrest Brothers were. Uh, were often uh, intercepted by um, double agents. And, and so uh, th that was never a successful attempt to link up between um, the uh, 
allied secret services and and the Forrest brothers, uh, to my knowledge. And there was a number of attempts that that failed um, with tragic results. Um, so the same society-wide will to fight for independence um, that that was seen at that time is still evident today um, in institutions like the Estonian Defense League, um, and it. That fact should give Estonia's large eastern neighbor pause before considering a repeat, a repeat of its behavior uh, elsewhere in the region. So Russia is still bogged down in a quagmire uh, in the Donbas region of Ukraine. Um, Russia may have overestimated the potential support of local Russian-speaking Ukrainians and underestimated the willingness of Ukrainian government military to resist. And um, and certainly uh, uh, they have they have resisted and it and has increased. Um, the sort of national awareness in Ukraine, and and I think Western support um, uh, should continue to to make sure that the Russians pay a price for that. Um, and then, so Putin should be under no illusion that any action against any part of the Baltics will be some sort of cakewalk. Um, they are ready this time, and he can expect a fierce, sustained resistance by the whole population, supported by the U.S. and NATO. So, um, and I'll. Uh, let me go back to Lithuania briefly, given it's Lithuanian Independence Day. This, um, this, this is Lithuania has put out three, three booklets for its citizens um, to, about what should happen in the case of some sort of invasion or or, or national emergency. Uh, some of the early ones um, were more focused on like you know what to do, how to survive, uh, how to avoid getting um, you know confrontation with 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 them. This is the third one. It's, it's not available in English, so I, I have not been able to read it because I don't read Lithuanian. But uh, my understanding is it's it's a lot more focused on the military resistance side of things, and uh, you you see that there's pictures of of Russian um, Russian armored vehicles and 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 uh, um, and there's there's there shows you how to what the different different uh, uh, different arms that the Russians have. So um, that is again uh, um, both useful in the event of of some sort of little green man operation, um, and also a deterrent. It sends a message to uh, to Russia that if if you um, if you try anything, it's it's not just the Lithuanian military or whatever NATO forces are there. It's the entire citizenry is prepared, um, is prepared for that. Um, and so, so what are the takeaways for U.S. policy? Um, U.S. policy should take the Baltic's unconventional warfare strategy into account in its material support of Baltic security. Uh, this includes considering the different training and equipment needs of the Defense League and its counterparts in Latvia and Lithuania when planning uh, U.S. military assistance. Uh, continued exercises like the ones I mentioned that practice potential real-time U.S. support for partisan warfare can also boost needed capabilities while acting as a significant deterrent. So we should not underestimate um, what the deterrent effect of, of this kind of preparation. Um, and, you know, conventional capabilities and their deterrent value will, of course, remain the, the, the you know, essential component. Um, but provided that the U.S. and NATO maintain a credible conventional military deterrent, the willingness and preparation of the citizens of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania to engage in sustained partisan resistance uh, provides a level of deterrence well beyond what their conventional military capabilities would suggest. So that's that's my presentation. I'm um, happy to take questions or comments or. Great, yes, thank you for sharing your research with our audience. Um, we do have a few questions coming in. First question, what proportion of the Estonian citizenry identify as ethnically Russian? 
so that's actually a complicated question. Um, I think it's it's somewhere around a quarter that that have Russian ancestry, but it's not monolithic. So there are um, there are uh, there are some that are very well integrated. Estonia has done a lot of work on that. Younger people, um, you, you know, you you can't tell the difference. They still they speak fluent English, just like just like Estonians typically do. They're going on the same hipster bars in. Um, in Teleskivi, uh, and and uh, they're fully integrated. Um, then you know um, there are some older people that remember the Soviet time when actually being a Russian speaker was sort of a pri privileged status, and they maybe never learned Estonian, and it's difficult for them to to integrate. Um, uh, they, you know, a huge amount of the Russian speakers do have Estonian citizenship now, uh, and there's a middle ground. There's some that maybe identify culturally as Russian and they they maybe live mostly in a with Russian speaking friends and in that environment but but they've you know uh, a lot of them have grown up in Estonia and they um, they know um, they identify as with their with their country uh, and so they they watch Russian media but it's not you know I I read an article that was very interesting about um, Narva which is the uh, a town on the border that used to be mostly ethnically Estonian, but then in World War II it got bombed, and the the, the Soviets didn't let the refugees back afterwards, and so it's now mostly Russian speaking. Um, and um, and you know they're right there on the border; they can you can see Russia from across the Narva River. Um, and they they a lot of people listen to you know watch Russian media. They may even have a sort of patriotic uh, attachment to Russia in a maybe not nation state way, but in a, in a cultural way, like, well, they, they like the, a strong Russia, but and they, I, there was one, one man that was interviewed that they said, you know, he kind of, you know, poo pooed the notion that Putin was a threat. And this was years ago, but, um, but he also, but then they said, well, what would happen if, if, if the Russians were to invade? He said, oh, well, we would fight them. And so he, he was, he, he was sort of pro-Russia right up to the point where you say, well, what if, what if the Russians come over the river? Um, and I think, uh, the, the 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 Russian speaking Estonians are it's a double edged sword because you know the the Russians talk about you know saving their compatriots uh, and and they often criticize Estonia's nationality policies because if you weren't you or your ancestors were not a citizen of the Republic of Estonia before the occupation you have to apply for citizenship and that involves a, a language exam um, so they didn't automatically give citizenship to people who came in during the occupation and they're they're sometimes criticized as as a for that, but on the other hand, the Russian speakers in Estonia have a better standard of living than Russians in Russia, and they may have family members there, so they know that, and their family in Russia knows that, um, and so they don't need saving. <laughs> they, um, um, they, uh, to a certain extent, it's a problem for the Putin regime because there are Russians that talk to their family members in Estonia, and even if they have some gripes, they have economic and political freedom that the that the people in Russia don't have. Um, so it's it's not a clear-cut issue. Um, and I um, you can overplay the extent to which Russian speakers in Estonia is a is a problem. It, it could be used as a pretext by 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 Putin, but it's not, you know, if he thought that the fact that people spoke Russian in eastern Ukraine meant that they would welcome the Russian invaders, that turned out to not be entirely true. It certainly certainly does not apply in Estonia or Latvia. Lithuania has very, you know, has much smaller uh, population of um, Russian speakers, but um, 
they certainly would not be welcomed um, by the the Russian speakers living in Estonia. Certainly not, not as not not a lot a lot of them. Certainly by by the bulk of them, it would not. Thank you. Uh, before I move on to the next question, if you have a question for Mr. Rice, please feel welcome to comment in the Q and A box at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Um, the next question I have for you is: What role does Kaliningrad play in Estonia's security defense? That uh, Kaliningrad is a is a problem because it's a it's an enclave of Russia that is, um, you know, it's if you think about Lithuania, it's bordered on the one side on the west by Kaliningrad and Poland, um, and then on the um, in the east by Belarus, uh, which currently has a you know uh, uh, a dictator who's uh, allied with Putin. So. Um, that's that's a problem, um, and it's it's a problem for when they, they talk about. Um, I think it was former Estonian President um, Ilves that coined the term Suvalki Gap." There's that that little stretch where Poland and um, Lithuania share a border. That if you were going to move um, conventional forces from, say, Germany into the Baltics, they have to pass through this fairly narrow corridor, and um, you can see a situation where the Russians try to pinch that off between Kaliningrad and Belarus and prevent troops from, from um, um, going by land for, um, to uh, mount a defense of the Baltics, um, which obviously means that you, in defense planning, you have to consider also um, uh, reinforcement by air and sea uh, through the Baltic Sea. Um, and like I mentioned, there were those um, special, special forces training, and I think those were about airlift of, of supplies into um, uh, to individuals in Estonia that would be resisting some kind of uh, invasion or occupation. Um, so yeah, Kaliningrad is a is a is a problem, um, and it obviously plays a, a big factor into the defense of the Baltics as a whole. Next question I have here is a two part question. So I'll ask you the first part first, and then follow up with the second. Apart from NATO, do you think the EU will play a meaningful role in preventing or countering any Russian invasion of Baltic states? So that's a good question. Um, there's a lot of talk in the EU at times about maybe a, a European defense force. Um, and um, the reality is NATO is a, a fully functioning defense force that involves a lot of EU nations. Um, and in fact, um, you notice that uh, Sweden and Finland, who are officially neutral and not parts of NATO, they have been doing a lot of joint exercises with, with NATO. And so uh, effectively, um, the defense would have to be led by NATO. Uh, the EU can play uh, a, a positive contribution and, and does. Um, there is a, um, uh, and I'm blanking on the team right now, but there's a defense plan where there's um, there's there's sort of funding and joint um, point purchases that help build up the militaries, and that's uh, uh, arguably com uh, complementary to um, um, to NATO. And to the extent that there, the NATO, is, uh, the EU is able to help help get countries, um, uh, you know, uh, militaries up to up to snuff, and and uh, and uh, you know, in ways that are interoperable with NATO, that's helpful. 
Um, also, just in infrastructure, um, the EU does a lot of work in infrastructure, and there's a there's the issue of getting of moving troops. You know, a lot of American troops are in Germany, and um, so in, whenever you're you're improving or building the roads and infrastructure, uh, and this is a, this is something that, that they talk about as a contribution. This isn't just an incidental thing. This is something that's consciously thought of. Um, they um, that infrastructure helps move NATO troops to where they need to go. Um, in whether that be Poland, whether that be on the Black Sea, whether that be in the Baltic Sea, um, EU work on infrastructure helps complement uh, defense. And the second part of that question, can Russia tolerate the inevitable economic retaliation that would follow an invasion of the Baltic states? So there are already a lot of sanctions on Russia, and um, they... Um, so you would think that they already wouldn't be able to tolerate what they have. Um, I, it's it's hard to say what 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 the calculus is uh, in Putin's mind. There is um, uh, there's an aspect of nationalism that sometimes supersedes um, the rational calculation of what you know your country's needs are. Like you, you um, um, and so no, Russia it would be devastating. Uh, um, but then again. Russia also has, you know, it's built there. They're building the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and they they use they use their economic links to countries like Germany or, or the EU as writ large as also a tool. And so there's they hope that then that Europe will think, well, we can't afford, you know, um, what will happen. Although, I, the, you know, the, the EU has had uh, good solidarity um, on 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 some sanctions and. Um, They've hurt Russia, um, but also, um, if you know, there's there's a, there's the issue of national pride. Would um, you know? Um, would they withdraw? And also, Putin's interest is staying in power. And if he suffered a, a terrible defeat and had to withdraw with his tail between his legs, that could cause problems for his future. So if if Russia were to invade or do any kind of um, of, of, of operation, um, I mean, like as I mentioned, they would be incredible, uh, incredible blowback uh, beyond the conventional, and it would be uh, it would be even worse than than the Donbas situation. Um, I think the way, the way, and so they inevitably would fail, and I think that could lead to a toppling of uh, of the Putin regime. Um, but it, that's not. I think he would sustain it as long as he possibly could, uh, knowing that. But also, that's something he should keep in mind, that if he launches an invasion, uh, it's not going to be successful, and that's going to be a problem for his continuation in power. The next question here, um, would you please discuss the potential of Estonia destabilization through Russian economic and energy power, such as gas pipelines, which you just uh, discussed a little bit about, against Estonia and European allies to win without invasion? Sure. Um, so actually, uh, Estonia has historically is actually a little bit more energy independent than the other Baltics because it has a large reserve of oil shale. Uh, unfortunately, oil shale is even more dirty than coal, so it's it's kind of on its way out. It's also, interestingly, the sort of economic base of the um, the, the uh, eastern part of uh, Estonia, where uh, a lot of Russians live, and so 
the, the decline of that industry has meant declining economic standards for them, and that's a problem, and Estonia's working on economic development for them. Um, but they're less reliant on natural gas uh, than the other two Baltic countries. Um, but um, Lithuania has built a, um, a, uh, a liquid natural gas uh, terminal um, that is uh, in the port of Klaipeda. Uh, and I've seen it, uh, and they're even thinking about expanding it. And it's been actually extremely successful in that they get, I, last I heard, about half of their natural gas from from uh, from allies like Norway or even the United States um, uh, through that liquid natural gas terminal. And but that has result is that the gas that they get from Russia, they have to Russia has to offer a market rates because they can't they're not they can't just set the price and demand that they take it. Um, so the, the gas bullying is a, is a problem for the Baltics. It's probably a bigger problem for Ukraine or um, other other countries. Um, and it's something that, I mean, the United States has sanctions against Nord Stream 2, and, um, and that's a strong bipartisan support for that in Congress um, because of the, the fact that, there, you know, um, that that would give the Russians the ability to bypass Ukraine uh, and blackmail um, transit company, countries. Now, the Baltics aren't transit countries. Um, and I think they're increasingly becoming more energy independent. So it's 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 a uh, it's something to keep an eye on. But it's less of a concern in there, and they're they've made a lot of progress in in um, preventing that from becoming a bigger issue in the Baltics. Thank you. The next question I have is: Is cyber warfare part of Estonia's total defense principle? Absolutely. Um, the NATO Cyber Defense Center of Excellence is located in Tallinn. Um, they actually. They, uh, there's a large tech sector in Estonia. They were even working on that before the cyber attacks, but then they were the first country to fend off a major cyber attack and they kind of got got on the map. And so it's ironically, sometimes they talk about being uh, grateful to Russia for, for attacking them because they were able to show what they were able to do and they were able to learn lessons that they were able to apply. So um, that center of excellence is located in Tallinn and they've issued the, the Tallinn manual for cyber uh, about cyber warfare. Uh, and so they're sort of a leader in the field of, of cyber warfare. And of course, it, it, it fits into their calculus. And they also have an ambassador at large for um, for cybersecurity or something like that, who, who kind of goes around and shares their their experience with other countries and um, uh, and helps get everybody on the same page. They're, they're a good voice in the EU um, talking about about cybersecurity and, and getting all the allies on, on the same page. So um, that's definitely a big part of it, yes. How much do the Baltics coordinate their plans for resistance with each other? Uh, quite a bit. So, like I said, they, that, that the time has passed when it was when it was not coordinated. Um, they do have somewhat different. They have different militaries with somewhat different military needs. So it's not the case that they every purchase is a joint purchase. But they do do joint purchases to to, to save on economies of scale. So they if they all need something. They will go in together and do a joint purchase. Um, and then I also know that um, then this is where my day job intersects, that there's the Baltic Security Initiative, which um, Congress required the U.S. military to put together along the line of the uh, uh, Ukraine Security Initiative, where they will uh, do a more kind of concerted look at the, the future needs of the Baltics. We've been providing security assistance on an annual basis, depending on we look at the needs each year. This is intended to be a, a, a larger um a larger, more systematic look at what we need several years going down the road. And it's, it's a, it was a joint effort by all three Baltic countries to, to um, institute this. And that, of course, then implies that it will all it will be joint effort about what the needs are and 
Um, and, uh, and so there's, yeah, they, they, they work together to put, put the, the framework of that concept together. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, the, the, um, the Baltic countries are well coordinated, um, uh, with each other. And, uh, in fact, they, um, they sometimes travel together because they recognize that even though they're very distinct cultures and very, very separate countries, they're seen as kind of one entity. And so, for instance, the three presidents traveled together and met with President Trump uh, a few years ago, and um, they they often kind of present a united front or the foreign ministers will 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 do meetings together. And um, uh, so, yeah, they they um, they work very, very closely. Thank you. And we'll take two more questions. Um, thank you for your response or all our attendees questions. Um, so the next question I have for you is, do you think that Biden, that a Biden administration policy will differ from the Trump administration policy? And if so, how? So that's a good question. I, um, it's still early in the Biden administration, but I don't think we can expect to see major differences. Um, um, there's, you know, there are a lot of the sort of on the, you know, um, uh, a lot of the, the work with the Baltics has kind of continued. The, um, the, the um, European Deterrence Initiative funding. Um, uh, the, you know, I, I don't think there'll be major changes in Baltic policy. I'm told that Biden is uh, very familiar with the Baltics and, um, and has a history of support. Um, so I don't see, I don't see major changes, um, but we'll have to see. And the last question I have, I think it's a, a good end question. Um, what can be done to engage more U.S. legislators with the Baltic issues? So um, that's an interesting question, <laughs> considering that, that I work for a legislator. Um, but I think uh, there, there has been a an increased bipartisan recognition of the threat that Russia faces. And I think that has led, like I said, you know, people who are following these issues can, could tell, you know, going back into the, you know, uh, mid 2000s that Russia, you know, was a problem and that Putin was a problem. Um, uh, Edward Lucas's new Cold War came out in 2008. And that was, you know, a year after the bronze soldier affair in Estonia. They were early signs, um, and then there was the you know invasion of of, uh, of Georgia uh, in 2008. Um, so, um, but sort of Americans didn't really pay attention until uh, until the issue of election meddling and, and so forth came up. And so I think a lot of Americans are familiar with it. And so I think legislators will um, be more receptive to the issues. I think an important point is that these countries have had a lot of experience dealing with Russia. They've dealt with um, they've dealt with propaganda. They've dealt with, you know, the sort of, um, you know, meddling and fake news type situation for a long time because they, um, you know, uh, they unfortunately had 50 years in the Soviet Union where all the news was fake news. And um, and so there's a sort of there's a resilience to Baltic society that America doesn't have. We're sort of naive in that respect. We um, they can, you know, average citizens are better able to identify um, sort of a propaganda message. Um, and so I think it's not just about what we can do to support the Baltics, which I think is important because they are, uh, they're on the front lines, um, but also what the Baltics can do to support the United States. And I think that's a message that legislators can hear that 
these these people have knowledge. They have the, the Cyber Defense Center of Excellence. They have um, uh, Riga has the um, uh, uh, Stratcom Center of Excellence. So they they deal with this fake news stuff, and they've they've done a lot of research and and uh, dealt with that. Um, and so those are um, they're also their experience and 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 knowledge is a is a resource that we can use. Um, now that there's a bipartisan realization that Russia is a, is a serious problem. That was a great answer. Thank you. Um, well, I believe that's all the time that we have this evening. I would like to thank Mr. Rice for joining us and all of you who tuned in here on Zoom and Facebook. If you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP, or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Thank you, everyone.